Well, if you will, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 14 this morning. Romans chapter 6, 1 through 14. Let's pray. Father, would you help us as we open your word? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to respond in the way that you desire? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can a Christian be careless about obedience and indifferent to holiness? Put it another way, can you be a Christian and not be pursuing a holy life? I mean, after all, it's true that salvation is the free gift of God by his grace. It's not of works, it's free. It's by grace. And if it's free and it's by grace, then why should it matter how we live? If salvation is not based on how we live, why should it matter then how we live? Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call that Attitude towards grace, cheap grace. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, and there he defines what cheap grace means. Bonhoeffer writes, cheap cheap grace means grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are then infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? He goes on to say, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. This idea of cheap grace was something that Paul was being accused of preaching. After all, if you read chapter five, verse 20, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Not only was this a message that Paul had been accused of preaching, it's a message that many professing Christians have bought and believe. Our goal today and in the weeks ahead is to help you, by God's grace, according to his word, not to buy into that false teaching of cheap grace. The goal today is to help you not to see grace as cheap, not to see grace as something that you can use to your advantage, to go on sinning, because the more you sin, the more grace you get. Friends, that is not the gospel. So it is with that in mind that we begin in chapter six, verse one this morning. Let's read this together. 
What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. The main point that Paul is making here in Romans chapter six is this, grace is not an excuse to continue living a lifestyle of sin, but actually, asserts that we have died to sin so that we may no longer be enslaved by it or to it. So Paul's being accused of preaching cheap grace and Paul says, no way. This is not cheap grace. This is not a gospel that permits you to go on sinning. And so for us to see that more clearly and to understand the provision of God's grace in the gospel more clearly, Paul unpacks for us three important lessons about grace that we need to see and understand today. We're gonna see the distortion of grace, the truth of grace, and the appeal of grace. The distortion, the truth, and the appeal. We spent a short amount of time on the first point and more of our time on points two and three. Let's consider really the distortion of grace. This is really Paul setting up his his response to those who would say he preaches cheap grace. He's just said in Romans 5 verse 20 that where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. And he can hear the response to that. And indeed, he has heard the response to that. Everywhere he had gone, he had been accused of misrepresenting what salvation is about. So in chapter six, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that that grace may abound? That's what people have been accusing him of preaching. You're preaching that we should continue sinning so grace would abound. And they connect that back to verse 20. And Paul says, that is not what I'm saying. So this distortion of grace, there were those who were misrepresenting Paul and his gospel. There were those who were distorting God's work of grace and what that meant and the implications of grace. 
Paul has spent the first five chapters unpacking for us how God graciously pardons the guilty. Just last week, we considered there in chapter five where Paul contrasts the work of Adam to the work of Christ, how all of us are in one or the other. All of us are born into this world in Adam, and it's only by the work of Christ through faith in him that we can benefit from his work. The good news is that for those of us who are in Christ, we're told there in chapter five, we've received the abundance of grace the gift, the free gift of righteousness and eternal life. That's what we have as those who are now in Christ. And so when you think about all of that, when you think about all that Paul has said up until this point, first five chapters, just how bad off we were, dead in sin, not seeking after God, and yet God brings about the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness to be received through faith, it almost seems too good to be true, doesn't it? Salvation by grace seems too good to be true because that's not how everything else in life works. And Paul understands that. And that's been the attack against his gospel. That's too good to be true. And they wrongly deduce from that, if that is true, then why not just go on sinning? And Paul is here to help us understand that's not what the gospel does. While our salvation in Christ is certainly glorious, Paul knew there were those who were misunderstanding and misrepresenting, and so he's seeking here to correct them. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul doesn't beat around the bush, does he? Verse two, by no means. The old King James, even though the word God isn't there, says God forbid, really getting at the heart of Paul's passion here that you've, you've misunderstood the gospel. If you think grace is a permission slip to go on sinning, you don't understand grace. So shall we sin that grace may abound? By no means, he says. Not at all. Grace is not a free license to go on sinning. Quite the contrary, as we will see as we work through this passage together. Brothers and sisters, let this be just a reminder to us, even as a church, Let this be a a word to us of warning in a way. May we never harbor or teach or even tolerate a gospel that makes room for a lifestyle of sinning. A gospel that is void of repentance is not the biblical gospel. If you think that you can come into salvation without without repenting, without turning from sin and seeking to attack it, but rather embrace it and live in it, you don't understand the gospel. Paul's answer, are we to continue in sin, but grace may abound? By no means. And then notice what he says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The reason that we're not to continue in sin, Paul says here, is that we've died to it. Now that's what we've got to spend the rest of the sermon unpacking. How did that happen and what does that mean? How did we die to sin and what does that mean for our lives? So Paul's argument here in response to those who've misrepresented the gospel, that the gospel is somehow a free license to sin, Paul says, by no means, how can we continue in sin if we've died to it? Now we need to answer the question, how have we died to it and what does that mean? Which leads me to point number two. 
the truth of grace, or the power, we could say, the power of grace. The power of grace. Paul's conclusion is that Christians cannot continue living a lifestyle of sin because they've died to it. Now, clarification. Paul is not teaching sinless perfectionism. Paul is not saying here that if you're truly a Christian, you'll never sin again. That's not what he's saying. Grace does not provide this pathway to go on sinning, but it has a power that pushes us away from sin, that that releases us from the burden, from the enslavement, from the captivity of sin. Grace is powerful. What does it do? Notice a couple of things here that it does. One, it changes our condition. See that in verses three through five. It changes who we are. Look at verse three. Remember, we're answering the question, how can we who died to sin still live in it? It's a, it's, we're not really answering. It's a rhetorical question. He's basically saying, as a Christian, you've died to sin, so why would you continue to live in it? It's rhetorical. You shouldn't. Then he goes on, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. How did we die to sin? According to verses three through four, Paul refers here to Christian baptism, namely that all true believers have been baptized into Christ, specifically his death, burial, and resurrection. What does that mean? Is he referring to water baptism here? Well, certainly the Roman Christians or any Christians in that day and time, whenever they heard the word baptism, would have had the concept of water baptism in their minds because there would have been no concepts. Listen, there would have been no concept of a Christian that had not been baptized. It would have been a foreign concept to them. You mean you're a Christian and you've not yet been baptized? That's like a, that doesn't make sense. And so, yes, there's the concept of water baptism here, but he's using that idea that the reality of water baptism as a concept to describe our union with Jesus. Let me try to illustrate this in a couple of ways. You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse two, there Paul speaks of Israel as being baptized into Moses, thus signifying their identity with Moses and the fact that he is their spokesman. Thus by this identity, they participated in the leadership and blessings that Moses brought. So to be an Israelite then was to be fused with Moses. And Paul says, baptized into Moses, fused with him. Let me try it another way. Now, I, I'm a Notre Dame football fan. I started to use Cowboys, but I figure some of you still soar over the, over the loss last week. So I'm going to go with Notre Dame. I started pulling for Notre Dame when I was a kid. I don't know why or how. My parents don't know why or how, but I just did. And yes, I know they're Catholic and I'm Baptist. And the fact that I'm using a Catholic football team illustration to help you understand baptism is quite ironic. But hang out, hang with me here for a minute. 
Whenever Notre Dame wins a football game, particularly a close football game, you may hear me say something like, we really pulled that one out, didn't we? Or if we lose, I might say, if Notre Dame loses, something like, well, we really didn't play that well. Or for people who don't like Notre Dame, they will say things to me like, you all are always overrated. They're just jealous. <laughs> Notice, though, how I refer to them as we and others who don't like them refer to them as you. Now listen, I've never stepped once on the field as a Notre Dame football player. Much less have I ever been on the campus of the University of Notre Dame. If you want to get me free tickets to a football game there one day, you're more than welcome to. And yet, I associate myself with them in some way because I'm a fan of them. I pull for them, and in some way, weird as it may sound, their story is part of my story. Well, this is what Paul is doing here as he's using the reference of baptism, except with infinitely greater impact. Our baptism into Christ and the actual act of water baptism serves as a metaphor of sorts to describe our spiritual immersion into Jesus. To be clear, he's not saying that the act of water baptism is what unites you to Jesus. That's not true. He's merely pointing to the fact of its symbolic nature that shows that you're united to Christ. So close together. Water baptism does not say, but rather is an outward symbol of an internal reality. This is why, by the way, believer's baptism by immersion is important. You don't quite get the full glorious picture of our union with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection in a sprinkle. Just saying. He's in essence saying, think about your baptism and what it signifies. The fact that we've been baptized, immersed into Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and all that that means, it means that Christ's story is now our story, that when, we, when he died in this mysterious way, we died with him. By his crucifixion, Jesus defeats sin and pays the penalty for it, and we are beneficiaries of it. Therefore, when he died, we died with him. This union that we have with Jesus. Not only that, were we united with him in his death, we will be united with him in a resurrection like his, we're told. Not merely talking about our future resurrection, but the first resurrection, namely, that we've been raised now in the power of Christ's resurrection with the hope of our future resurrection awaiting us. We've been given a new identity. See verse four, look at verse four. Paul says, because of this union that we have in Christ, because we've been baptized into Christ, because we've been immersed in his death, burial, and resurrection, this has resulted in the promise that we too might walk in newness of life. It changes our condition. But notice number two, it empowers the decisions we make. Verses six through 10, we see this unfold a little bit more. In fact, what you have in verses three through five, verses six through 10 basically repeats it, except it expands on it a little further. 
says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Notice this union with Jesus implies that we don't go on sinning or that we're given over to a lifestyle of sin. Again, Paul's restating in verses six through 10 what he's already said in verses three through five, but with added emphasis. When we died with Christ, our old self was crucified with him. Notice what he says, in order that, underline that, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Doesn't sound like cheap grace to me. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Notice, by the way, that this is a statement of fact, not a command. He doesn't say, be crucified so that you can no longer live in sin. He doesn't say that. Rather, we've been crucified. It's a fact, it's a statement of fact. He is stating who you are in Jesus rather than commanding you to somehow be crucified. So friends, if you're a Christian, what Paul is explaining here is a given fact of who you are. This is who you are. This is your status. This is your condition now empowering the decisions you make. Again, this doesn't mean you won't ever struggle with sin or that if you do, somehow you must not be a real Christian. If you take that away from this passage, that's not at all what Paul's intending or the, more importantly, what the Holy Spirit intended in inspiring him to write this. Christopher Ashe said it this way. He said, we are not freed from sin's ability to tempt us, but we are freed from sin's power to kill us. Christians, this is huge. Your death to sin means that sin is no longer your master. So grace doesn't prompt you to continue on in sin. It actually does the contrary. It actually empowers and enables you to no longer live enslaved by sin. Some of you likely heard or saw recently the news coming out of North Korea where a North Korean soldier escaped, crossed, drove a jeep, got out of his jeep and sprinted across the border into South Korea. And when he did that, other soldiers were hot pursuit and they shot at him many times and they shot him at least five times. We don't know exactly how many times, but he was shot. He survived on the South Korean side of the border and he's now in South Korean hospital recovering as far as we know. The soldier that escaped North Korea lived a life under tyranny and horror. And he's now free from that. Now imagine with me for a moment that once he would be released from the hospital that he gets word from North Korea that they will take him back and they will give him all of these wonderful things if he'll just come back. And so he goes back to the DMZ and he walks back into North Korea. 
What if, if he did that and there was CNN and Fox and all of those people, I'm trying to keep it balanced here, all those people were watching this happen and unfold. There's this North Korean soldier that's now in freedom. He's gonna walk back across the border into North Korea because all these promises. You would think the guy has lost his mind. What a fool would do that. Brothers and sisters, every time we sin, that's what we're doing. We're going right back into North Korea. We've got freedom. We've been set free from tyranny and horror and the lies and the deception and all of the things that so easily entangle us. We've been freed from that. And every time you say yes to sin, it's like that soldier going back into North Korea, lost his mind. Why would they do that? Friend, understand what grace does. Understand what grace does. It doesn't prompt you to continue living a lifestyle of sin. It actually empowers you to flee from it. Now, before we move on, let's attempt to summarize Paul's argument. The objection came, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? Paul's answer, by no means. How can we continue to sin when we've died to it? Well, how did we die to sin? Through our baptism, through our union into Christ, specifically into his death, burial, and resurrection, through which we've been now been raised to walk in newness of life. This means not only is our eternal destiny secure, our present life is transformed in that sin and death no longer have dominion over us because it no longer has dominion over Christ. Grace, therefore, is not a license to sin, but a gift that catapults us away from it. Friends, the fact then is simple. We cannot continue a lifestyle of sin because we've died to it in Christ. And by the way, this might be a good opportunity for you to think about that. Might be a good opportunity for you to consider your identity and your status. Friend, have you died with Christ? Have you been united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection? Have you been united through faith in the full work and benefits and blessings of Jesus Christ? See, his life, death, burial, and resurrection was all for the benefit of those who would place their hope and faith in him. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, if you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, you've never put your faith in him, you've never trusted him for salvation, then friend, understand, go back to chapter five, that you're still part of this condemned humanity. You're still part of this this humanity that, that has not been released from captivity. You're still in that tyranny. You're still under that enslavement to sin. And that the only reason and the only way you can be released from that is through Christ. Friend, have you trusted in Jesus for your salvation? And if you've not, then what would be keeping you from that? What would be keeping you from placing your hope and trust in Jesus Christ? Look to him and be saved. Look to him and have this, this work applied to you. See this power of grace And have you been a recipient of this powerful work of grace? 
But then we have the appeal of grace. The appeal of grace. We've seen the distortion of grace, how those misunderstood it. We've seen now Paul re, uh, realign himself with, with what the facts are about grace, that it's powerful, that it's not permit, permitting sin, but it's actually powerfully breaking you from it through the finished work of Jesus. And now he appeals to us through giving us several, several different commands or imperatives. And this is important. He gives us several here. Paul, Paul's gospel of grace is not a ticket or insurance for our future into heaven only. In fact, I think those are bad illustrations to see it as insurance or a ticket. It's not that at all. But it has a powerful effect on our present. Not until Paul establishes the fact of our union with Christ does he then give us several exhortations. And so you need to see the structure here because what we have in Romans 6 is kind of in miniature what you see in the whole book of Romans. Paul has given us the facts of who we are in Jesus and then he gives us the commands. That's what he does throughout Romans. Really chapters one through 11 are the facts of who you are in Christ and then chapters 12 through 16 are many, many, many commands and imperatives. Know who you are, know what you have, know the facts of what God has done, then therefore do these things. And that's what you have right here. And I think this is one, if not the first imperative that we come to here in the book of Romans, not until chapter six. Remember that he said in verse four, one of the big purposes of our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection is so that we might walk in newness of life. Or verse six, so that our body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So what's the impact of the facts that Paul has laid out here? Well, it leads us to several things. Let's look at these together. You see them in verses 11 through 14. First of all, we need to consider our identity. When you think about this union with Jesus, when all that it means, the fact that grace is not about free license to sin, but rather it's a death to sin, first response is that we need to consider our identity. Notice verse 11. After he says all that he does about our union with Christ, he says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The very first thing that he commands us to do in light of all that we have in our union with Christ is to consider, use your brain, think about who you are. Consider your identity. Simply put, you and I need to recognize who and what we are in Christ. This is why it's important that we go and reflect upon the gospel regularly as Christians. Now, this is not some kind of strange mind over matter command. Paul is simply saying we need to think about the reality, we, we need to think about what's really true. We get distracted, we get confused, we often get led astray in life and all he's calling us back to here is consider the facts of what you are in Christ. Died to sin through the union that we have with Jesus. You have died to sin, Christians. 
Yet this is not often how we think, is it? Our experience tells us otherwise. Little side lesson there, never base good theology and practice off of your experience. Always base it upon what is true from God's word. Experiences will lie to you. Experiences will distort things. Experiences, important as they are, will confuse you. If you base a teaching and belief upon how you feel, then you've become the authority, not the, not the scripture. But the truth of the matter is, is that there, there are many days we don't feel dead to sin. Does it feel that way to us? We feel the terrible tug and pull of sin on our lives every day. We face temptation continually. We sometimes even get to the point of thinking, what's the use? Why even try fighting? It's so hard. And yes, you hear it here in Romans 6 that Christians are dead to sin, but you don't feel dead to sin. Sin feels very much alive to you. Again, we need to understand that Paul is not saying you will never wrestle with sin, that you will never struggle. In fact, he's assuming that you will. He's simply saying that if you're in Christ, sin no longer owns you. And you need to consider that. You need to reflect and meditate upon that fact regularly. And when is the last time you have reflected as a Christian upon the truth and beauty and glory and power of the good news of Jesus Christ that has broken the shackles of sin in your life and brought you out of that enslavement to sin? When have you meditated on that last? Paul says that's what you need to do first. Let this be your settled understanding of who you are. You, as a Christian, are dead to sin. In fact, if you all jump ahead, steal some of Jeremy's verses from next week, sorry. Verse 22, but now that you've been set free from sin have become slaves of God. You have a new master. It's not sin. So you need to consider that. You need to understand there's been a name transfer here, a new life given. You're no longer in Adam, you're in Christ. Step number one is consider who you are. Number two, you need to dethrone, by God's grace, sinful desires. Look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Here in verse 12, Paul commands us not to let sin reign. Two quick things here. Actual sins, things you do, are the fruit of and connected to sinful desires or passions. Notice what he says. Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions, their desires. And by the way, the fact that he's even commanding this, Paul is not saying, and we, we get it clear here, he's not saying that as a Christian, you no longer s struggle with sin. You're set free from it, no longer a battle, you'll never sin again. Verse 12 says, no, you're going to struggle or he wouldn't be commanding this. Let not sin reign. Uses this word reign, which we take from this, this idea of king. Notice, again, he doesn't say, all right, now that you're a Christian, you must never sin again. 
What he says is that we must make sure and fight that sin doesn't reign in such a way where we become obedient to its passions. There's a, a battlefield. The battlefield of sin is not out here. It's in here. It's in the things that you reflect on, the things you meditate on, the things that you desire and crave. It's those things that give fruit to actual sins that we see and think about when we think about sin. Not only that, we see that sin here, it's, it's not things done as much as it is a power. So friends, it means that there must be a battle that takes place on the passions, desires level. The battle of temptation is always at the heart level, your desires, motives, and passions. No one sins, actually does a sin, outwardly speaking, and say, where did that come from? It came from right inside of you, the desires of the heart. Paul's already made clear that sin is no longer your master. It's been dethroned, but still it is a powerful reality that we must do battle with. This is a matter of who reigns your desires. Who is it that holds captive your desires? This is why Peter in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Friends, the war of sin is, is waging, is raging on the heart, desire, passion level of our lives. Dethrone these sinful desires by looking and considering who you are in Christ, which leads us to number three, pursue God in righteousness. Friends, this order, I think, is inspired this way on purpose. He could have said, because of who you are, so you almost, he could have said, verse 11, because of this, don't sin, pursue Jesus. Do righteousness, not unrighteousness, but he doesn't. He, he uses this consider and he, he, he attacks there the passions. And now he gets to verse 13 and 14 where he says, don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God, the new master, verse 22, as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments to righteousness, for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So he's addressed our minds that we think about, rightly think about who we are. He's addressed our hearts and passions so that sin doesn't rule us there. And he now moves on to actions. And sin is not just a matter of saying no to actions and even saying no to certain desires. It's all a matter of who reigns your heart. But now he does get to that action level. As he says, don't present your bodies as instruments for unrighteousness, but for righteousness. Again, be sure you understand what he's saying. He's not saying that you should try to break free from sin. Rather, he's saying, since you've been released from sin's mastery over you, make use of this joyful freedom you have and offer yourself to God in righteousness. Present, offer yourselves as those who've been brought from death to life. Why? Because you're no longer under the condemning power of the law, but you've been brought under the redeeming power of God's grace. My friends, we know, as we wrap this up, 
Every single one of us in this room, as a Christian, if you're a Christian, every single one of us have unrighteous desires. We have been given over to, even this past week, if not this very day, sinful actions. And Paul's simply saying that grace has not led you there. This is not grace in your life leading you this way. This is you presuming upon God's grace in an ungodly way. That's sin number one. The fact that you've presumed upon his grace as a permission to go on sinning. So all of us have that, right? I'll just go ahead and do this. I know God's gonna forgive me anyway. That's a terrible non-gospel way of thinking. And when you think about your sinful desires, when you think about the actions that we are tempted to go into, we first and foremost must go back and think and reflect and consider what we are, who we are in Jesus. The fact that Paul's saying is that you, listen, you can say no to sin if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you can't. If you're a Christian, you can say no to sin it's not just a matter of willing yourself up to say no. There's all of these things involved, considering and reflecting upon who reigns your passion so that your actions follow. Friend, as fellow Christians together, we must be a church that seeks to be a sin-eradicating community, helping each other, be reminded. Sometimes we need help considering. Sometimes we need help not obeying sinful passions. Because we ought to be serving each other in this way every single day by pointing us back to what is true so that we can live out what God has commanded. So does the gospel of grace say, keep on sinning that grace may abound? Not at all. It actually says, you've died to sin. So why would you keep running back across that border into that tyranny that you've been released from? No, grace is not a permission to go on sinning. It's actually a power that God has brought in your life to transform you from sin's enslavement so that you can go on in righteousness. Friends, let's be such people that we would run hard from unrighteousness and run hard towards righteousness, that God would be glorified and that others would be well served. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful reminder. Lord, as mysterious as it is, but this wonderful reminder of our union with Christ. Lord, it may be that we simply just needed to hear that today because maybe the, the story of many of us in this room is the fact that we've not been considering well. We've been not, we've, maybe we've not been thinking much about your amazing, glorious work through Christ. Maybe we've been presuming upon that work and find ourselves ensnared and entrapped and entangled up in a, in a web of sin. Father, would you help us today to consider rightly, to think accurately about what we are, about who we are, about the fact that we have died to sin. That we've been raised in Christ to walk in newness of life. Would you help us to see how the, that newness is impacting us. Lord, everything about us changes when we meet grace.
everything. So Father, would you work in us? Would you work in us, oh God, that we may run hard after righteousness, understanding who you are and what you've called us to be and do. Lord, would you help us to flee, flee from the lies and the deception of sin and understand, Lord, that we've been released from its grip and from its power. Even if it doesn't feel like it, Lord, if we're in Christ, that is true. And may you motivate us and spur us on in righteousness because of that. Father, if there are those that are here today that don't know Jesus, they don't know what it means to be released from this captivity, Lord, I pray that you would stir their hearts and work in them today to show them the beauty of this glorious Savior that we have in Christ. Lord, we thank you for what we have in him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.